On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we have been told forever that the dream of millennials, of all of us, but millennials, has been to get into the housing market and buy a house, but it's too expensive, so they can't do it. Well, a new study is out saying there are some who have, and you'll never guess what they're feeling about their decision to buy a house. We'll talk about that. Also, Heather Bansley just won the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year Award. She is a beach volleyball player. She is number one in the world. She is a favorite to win a gold medal at the Olympics next summer in Tokyo. She joins us to talk about her and her sport. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It's going to come as no surprise to any of you to hear this, but real estate has long been a sore point for millennials. At least that's what we've been hearing over and over and over and over, right? You've probably heard that yourself. Prices have gone up and they've gone up and they've gone up to the point where many millennials feel it is now unattainable. It's not possible to be able to afford a house. I can't buy one. My job may not be stable. I may not have full-time employment or at least I'm not going to be at the same company for the next 15 or 20 years like my parents or my grandparents. And therefore, being able to have that steady income is very difficult. Banks aren't going to let me pass the stress test. Therefore, what am I going to do? How can I get a house? And of course, it's little wonder when you start looking at the dollars that are involved in this. An average house in Hamilton, right here in Hamilton, an average house price right now, or at least at the last reckoning, uh, was $571,330. That's the average house price, 571. If you go to Toronto and want to buy in Toronto, not greater Toronto, but in Toronto, a detached house, Average price, $1.35 million. So you can understand how, where the angst that they have comes from. And you can say, you know what? It is legit. I understand why you might be worried about this. Even with that though, there's a study out this week from the States, although I'm sure that it translates here. I don't really see why it wouldn't translate here. uh, That has some very interesting results, probably even a little bit shocking, the results. Uh, This American study says two-thirds of millennials who did buy a home, ready for this, regret that they bought it. They got into the market. They got onto the escalator. They're in the real estate world now, and they say, oh, man, wish I had not done that. Deborah Kearns is a longtime housing and mortgage writer. She now works for Bankrate.com, which is the company that did this. She joins us. Deborah, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? uh, Great. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you doing this. This study this these numbers the idea that millennials uh would be unhappy this seems to go against like everything we've been told because they all we hear want to get into the housing market and it's all utopia and happy when they do this this seems to fly in the face of all that right well you know our survey did find that two-thirds of millennial homeowners have some form of regret when it comes to purchase and when we drilled into it we found that the most common reason for that regret was the unexpected repair and maintenance costs that come with homeownership. So um, a quarter of millennials said that that was their biggest regret, followed closely by things like the house size and the location. Like, I bought a house too small, or it wasn't too big, or it was in a bad area. And then, you know, we had a smaller percentage of folks who said, hey, I have too high of a monthly mortgage payment, or I don't feel like I got the best rate possible. Mm. So 
th- those are some of the, the results we had, but overwhelmingly across all age groups, but especially millennials, those unexpected costs that come with homeownership um, seem to be the biggest pain point. Well, let, let's go. We're going to go through some of those in just a second, but just before we do, um, mm-hmm. this this is this always has been, and this came out in the study as well. The idea of owning a home. I mean, forever, this has sort of been a, a, a rite of passage, correct? When you become an adult, you eventually maybe get married, but you, you eventually buy a house. That's just what you do, correct? Right. So uh, for our purposes, uh, you know, you've probably heard of the phrase, the American dream. Sure. So yep. we, asked, we asked folks, you know, what do you view as being the cornerstone of the American dream? What, what do you rate as being the most important part of that? And 79% of all survey respondents said owning a home. And they said that they placed this above having a secure retirement or a successful career. So we found it really interesting that home ownership is still viewed as being um, the end-all be-all of, of attaining the American dream. And I think the, it is the Canadian dream as well. I think that's absolutely right. fair because I don't know what your theory for that would be. I, I think it just sort of shows that you've... You, there, you own something. There, there's something that you now have that you can, your piece of the world, I guess. I don't know exactly how you would describe it, but it makes sense. Right. Absolutely. So I think that's part of it. And I think it's, uh, you know, people view that as, hey, you know, once I've uh, struck out on my own, I have a career, I have maybe a family, I already started my family, or I'm getting ready to. Owning a home makes you feel like maybe you've arrived. Right. Um, and, you know, here it's always been viewed as a, a tool to build wealth for the long term, right? It's, you, it's typically the largest financial tra- transaction most of us will ever make. You hope. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know what else uh, you're buying that's more expensive. Maybe you have a private jet. I don't know, Kebra, but I don't. Yeah, so. not me, but... <laughs> <laughs> but that, but your point though, and it's, and I think you're bang on with this one that it's the way for generations now. It's the way that people have built their wealth in a sense because real estate typically goes up, and so you get in on the escalator, and then along the way you can, you know, once you retire, once whatever, you can leave something to your kids. But but one of the things I found so interesting about this study and what you've written about is that it seems as though for many of the millennials. It's the idea that I have only so much money. I would prefer to spend it on traveling or eating out or other experiences rather than something that is permanent, but is going to hold me back or, or contain my ability to do those things. So our study uh, didn't quite look at those factors. Uh, we, what we did look at is, you know, the folks who are not homeowners, we asked them what was the reason why you don't currently own a home, and they actually said uh, overwhelmingly that uh, 51%, and this is across all age groups, said they just don't earn enough money, they don't have enough income. And that was followed closely um, by not having enough money saved up for down payment and closing costs. Now, with the average home prices you just mentioned um, in your area, it's no wonder because, I, I mean, housing affordability has been a struggle in, in many large markets here in the United States, too. So, you know, by the time you try to scrape enough together for that down payment closing cost, uh, which is a, a struggle given the student loan debt that we have uh, a lot of folks face here, and just, you know, trying to uh, reconcile that with housing affordability, it's really a struggle for folks, I think, to make that leap into homeownership of the folks who, uh, of the people who don't currently own a home. This is the pain points they're uh, citing. And then the third most popular response, 34% of folks said they they just think home prices are too high well, right now. And that is sure. true. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting about real estate 
specifically this story that I saw today that really shocked me when I read this. And I, maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be shocked anymore by anything, but the idea that two thirds of millennials who have either bought, well, who bought homes have been having some regret about buying the homes or those who haven't got into it. Well, that's another story. But when I hear that the people who have bought these homes, because this always has seemed to be as, as Deborah Kearns, who's with me, has said, this is the American dream, the Canadian dream. So you finally do it and then you go, oh, I don't know. And, and Deborah, you, you listed a number of the reasons for some of the regret. Let's go through some of these because I think they are valid and interesting ideas. The first one, and you said it right off the top, there are people who go into buying a home who don't realize, I guess, that in a few years you may have to put on a roof or there may be a plumbing leak or your furnace may go or, I mean, pick out one of any million number of things. Have we just generally, and I'll say we, but parents done a really bad job teaching our now adult children that this is something you would expect when you buy a house, that you have to do stuff with it? Well, I think it comes down to an awareness based on education, you know, and working with, you know, your realtor to some degree has a responsibility to to, to keep, help you keep these things in mind. But, um, you know, we're, we live in an age where so much information is available at your fingertips. So, you know, home buyers really should take the initiative, I think, to research on their own, you know, what are all these hidden costs that are involved in owning a home? Because it's not just that mortgage principal and interest, right? You got property taxes, you have homeowners insurance, uh, HOA fees. I'm not sure if you all have homeowners associations here in Canada. I'm sure you probably do. Yep. Um, you know, and so that those are like the minimum things. And then you have to think about, gosh, you know, higher utility bills that come um, with owning a big, maybe a bigger property. Then you have, yeah, like, like you're mentioning, putting on a new roof, and uh, you know, when the ins- when the furnace goes out or the mm-hmm. heater goes. The water heater go up. Those are huge expenses that um, you know people might subconsciously be aware of them, but maybe not aware of how much they cost when push comes to shove, and you get that contractor in your house telling you, hey, it's going to cost $8,000 to <sighs> replace your yeah. entire HVAC system. Um, and I think that's especially, you know, when you look at what millennials are buying, right? Uh, you know, starter homes are generally within their price range. That's what they're looking at. So these are probably going to be older houses. And older homes, as you probably know, uh, come with aged appliances, aged systems, uh, windows that are probably at the end of their lifespan. Uh, and windows are another high cost item. That oh, but Deborah, but Deborah, yeah. you're, 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 all of us watch HGTV and know that <laughs> in the span of an hour with just a few thousand dollars, we can all turn our crappy rundown fixer upper home into a house on the cover of Better Homes and Gardens. That's how we do it. Right. No, I, I'm holding out hope Joanna Gaines is going to show up to my house one day and uh, give me the fixer-upper treatment. But, but I that think that's happened yet. I think that's um, having an impact, though. I think people legitimately look and go, this won't be that hard. If I need I a fix, I can true. get a fix. There is a rom- like this romanticized version of home buying that we see on television that that it's not quite the way it works. Um, you know, it, it gives you, I think, a false sense of uh, confidence. Maybe that oh, it's going to be just that easy. I see three homes, right, and I just choose the one, and uh, my offer gets accepted right off the bat. And, always know, for lower than oh yeah, always for lower than the asking price too. Right, right. Never actually. I, mean, I would dare say in a lot of markets, especially you know the entry level market is very. Competitive in a lot of major cities, and you know you're 
you're, especially if you're asking for seller concessions, which you know would be, hey, give me a credit towards the carpet that's old and needs to be replaced, or um, you know, I, I want you to fix this leaky faucet. You may run into folks who are not willing to do that because they have ten other offers behind you. So, um, but what I always recommend that folks do is never, ever, ever skip that home inspection, mm. that property inspection um, that you, you you should have before you close a deal because that is what's going to identify a lot of these major issues up front. And then you can make a conscious decision. You know, I, I don't know if you have uh, home inspection contingencies there in Canada. Of I imagine course, you yep, do. Yep. We do here. And you want that in your offer, especially if you are a first-time buyer, especially if you're cash-strapped. You don't want to buy a home and, and then find out it needs $20,000 worth of updates that, to make it livable, right? The challenge, though, and, and you're absolutely right, and when we've bought our homes, uh, we have always done that, but the challenge is now, especially in a market like ours that is so hot, right. that you get into these bidding wars, and, and they'll often take the first one, the first cash offer with no conditions, and that means, oh man, I either get the house and I drop the building inspection, or I don't get the house. Right, but I would err on the side of caution <laughs> and maybe lose out on that one house and keep looking for you know a seller that will work with you um, and, and not just off the bat <laughs> it just you know skip over your offer for that reason because as a you have to protect your investment and you have to protect your personal finances so you don't want to roll into these um, offers not having at least an idea even if you're willing to waive um, any type of contingency. You still need that inspection. You should still go into it wise, eyes wide open, knowing what you're buying. Because if you wait till after the fact, you're probably going to have some buyer's remorse if you find out it needs a new roof and um, you, you have to make twenty thousand dollars worth of repairs. And you know, uh, like you're mentioning, the average prices being what they are there, uh, very high as they are here. Um, you really need to. Uh, be able to budget and plan for those expenses. I always try to recommend that people put aside 1% of the home's purchase price uh, into a separate savings account each year so that they have money um, that they can dip into for unexpected repairs and maintenance. But um, that that would be in addition to an emergency fund because you don't want to deplete the emergency fund, which is meant to replace your income should you lose your job. And that's hard for people to do, though, if you're talking about a million-dollar average home. I mean, it is very hard, and, and unfortunately, we got to run. But the other part that's difficult is that, and again, reading there was a, the story that I was looking at was from uh, mynorthwest.com. They wrote about this as well, and they pointed out mm-hmm. that a lot of millennials, again, it's the it's the the core values of millennials. You want to experience things, and so you want to you now if every dollar that you have has to go into your house, man, that kind of cuts into your lifestyle and we got to run unfortunately Deborah but it it's does, it, yeah. it makes for a difficult spot if you want to get in. Listen, Deborah Kearns really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. My next guest, I wanted I would have liked to have had on last week cuz on Thursday she was named the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year. That is the top athlete for the Hamilton Burlington area and What's great about this award, and I said this that night, it is not one of those awards that is given out over the years, traditionally anyway, has not been given out because, oh, it's time for a woman to win, or, oh, it's time for a guy to win, or, oh, it's time for an amateur to win. It has traditionally and consistently been given to the best athlete from this area, and there have been many, many, many excellent athletes who have been in the running. This year, 
Uh, she won over Brandon Sajan, who was a star in last year's OHL run to the finals and the championship for the Hamilton Bulldogs, and Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's now playing in the NBA with the Los Angeles Clippers. That is not uh, an inconsequential trio of people, and for her to come out on top, that was outstanding. So I wanted to have her on last week, but there was a reason why I couldn't. We're glad that Heather Bansley is able to join us. Now, Heather, congratulations. Thanks for being here tonight. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Uh, For those who don't know, and I better finish the story, the reason we couldn't have Heather on last week is because she wasn't really able to talk talk very well because two days before the dinner for the award, uh, she had all four of her wisdom teeth yanked out. So um, how are you feeling? Uh, I'm doing much better this week, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I appreciate the consideration. Yeah, I'm still still recovering, but feeling much better. Yeah, you the the night that you won the award. Uh, I, I hope this isn't insulting. You, you didn't look like you were feeling all that all that good. Um, <laughs> yeah. d- did sitting there and having to sit through the entire dinner and everything else while you looked like you would have rather been home in bed with some strong drugs? Did did, did it take away any any of the excitement of actually winning? No, it didn't. I um, I think I I I very much enjoyed oh, enjoyed being there, even though I I wasn't feeling well and I <laughs> couldn't really enjoy a whole lot of the dinner. But um, I hope uh, I hope I didn't disappoint anybody, even though I couldn't put on a really big smile. But. Well, and you know, I, and I'll say this: I think actually on one side it was great because there have been a few award winners in previous years who have given long, drawn-out speeches. Yours was. Just you know, tighten right off the stage. I think people would have said, wait, that that's the way we should be doing it now. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, it, I, uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, I, I do wish I could have maybe said a, a few more words, but, um, yeah. <laughs> well, after you win the gold medal at the Olympics next year and you're back to win it again, you'll have plenty of opportunity and you're out of wisdom teeth now. So there's no real opportunity for that to happen again. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> sailing from here on in. Exactly. Well, yours, I wanted to bring this up because yours is not a sport that always gets a ton of attention. Beach volleyball is not the sport that's on TV every night and every weekend. Uh, is that okay with you? No, I, I mean, I wish that for the sake of our sport that it was different. I think that we'd get a lot of publicity and viewership during the Olympics and then outside of the Olympics. Um, where it does a definite drop. So uh, as an athlete, I mean, I, I really wish for our sport that it was um, that we, ha- you know, especially in Canada, that we would be on TV more, that streaming was more readily available. Why? The, I mean, look, if for people who have seen it, and I'm sure most people have seen it, even if in passing and as you say, in the Olympics, it's a fun sport to watch. Why, why is it a challenge to get eyeballs sometimes? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question, and I think that's what a lot of promoters of beach volleyball um, always have to ask themselves. I think that it's really tough in the Canadian market with the, all the professional leagues, with, you know, with the NHL, the NBA, um, uh, you know, the MLB, uh, with even with soccer coming in. And so it's, you know, we're competing with, with all these professional sports, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's tough. I think, um, too, we don't have a national tour in Canada that, so that we can promote as well. So I, I think that's also pretty difficult. Um, whereas you look at, you know, some, a country like the States where they, they're also competing with, um, 
with other professional sports, but they have a very successful national tour that they promote and, and have a huge fan base uh, um, from. Well, and also, you know, the beach volleyball events that could be held in Canada in Sudbury in February probably are, uh, are a little rough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, but, but it is, again, it, well, let me say this. When I, I, I'm a late arrival to volleyball. I've, I've learned to really appreciate volleyball, but more in recent years, and mostly through the Mac men's volleyball team, which is excellent and going for their seventh provincial title in a row this weekend. But one of the things that I've discovered, it's a sport that I think is way more impressive and way more exciting live. It's not necessarily one of those sports that is as good on TV. Do you agree with that? Um, I agree that it's very impressive, entertaining live. I think as, as someone who's a volleyball fan and who plays volleyball, I can, I can appreciate it on, um, I can appreciate it on TV, but um, I understand your comment from a sense. I mean, that's how I feel about, Sports in general, I, I do Fair like enough. to to watch them live. Um, but I think one really entertaining thing about volleyball and beach volleyball is that um, you know it's it's rally point, so it's um, so, so someone's earning a point every single time. So, you know, every every twenty seconds, thirty seconds, there's there's you know you're cheering for one side or the other. Whereas if you look at maybe. Uh, a soccer game, you know, the score could be 1-0 or even 0-0. So you, you don't get that as many opportunities to really score, uh, or sorry, um, cheer for, you know, for, for those goals. Or um, it, So yeah, that's what I think. Um, I, th- I think that that's a part of what makes volleyball really exciting. How did you get into it? Because you, you didn't start in beach volleyball. No, I started, um, I started playing indoor volleyball. I, I went to University of Toronto and I played... Uh, indoor volleyball there. But even before that, how did you get, how did you get into volleyball period? Cause it's not always the sport that everybody finds. No. Um, I started, I know I played lots of different sports, um, in, in school and I was a pretty competitive soccer player and, um, there was a new volleyball club coming to water down. And so a lot of my soccer teammates, um, went out to try out for the team and, um, they were all my friends. We all played soccer together. So I, I went out and tried out for the volleyball team with them as well. And immediately was good at it, immediately loved it. What was it? How, how did you stick with it? <laughs> um, I wasn't immediately great at it, but I do kind of funny story I like telling people that you know a lot of my friends almost most of my teammates uh, soccer teammates made the A team and I was um, I mean I was on the B team <laughs> um, but I you know I fell in love with it right away I had a really good uh, coach who um, came in and directed the club Bill Swires and um, I but I yeah I fell in love with it and I you know I kind of continued on playing volleyball and soccer at a pretty high level. And then I, um, I was at a point in high school where I had to choose between playing soccer or, or volleyball in university. And, um, and I ultimately, ultimately I choose volleyball and I think it was a really good choice. I, I hope it's not insulting, but you're, you're not six foot five. I mean, you, you have a body size that seems to be more cut out for soccer. How did you decide that volleyball was where you were going to go? Yeah, I think at the time, I, I mean, I, I knew that I was a smaller volleyball player, um, but I, I know I had been just been playing soccer for so long, and I, I just really loved 
um, the sport of volleyball. I think I, I didn't see myself playing at that time. I didn't see myself playing it professionally um, after university, but I knew that it was just, it was a sport that I loved. And then I just, I, I had so much more to learn. I, I think I was at a little point in my career with soccer where I felt I had kind of maxed out with my potential and um, yeah. So where do you, or where does the, the transition then come from after even you've been doing indoor volleyball now, how do you, and you went to U of T, you played there. How do you find mm-hmm. beach volleyball? Where do you, how do you land there? Yeah. So my coach at University of Toronto, Christine Drake is, she, um, she was a former member of the beach national team herself. So she was um, really uh, encouraged a lot of the athletes at U of T who were playing indoor on, on with her program to play beach in the summers as a sort of off season training. And um, yeah, we had a really great uh, network of alumni at U of T and current players. So I got to play with um, sort of all different levels of, of at beach volleyball and um, experience that for about four months of the year. And um, so I really just kind of fell in love with it in the summers of, um, of my university career. And I, I realized that um, as I got further along in my volleyball career, that being a shorter player, as you said, it, um, I was more suited to the beach volleyball game and being on the sand, it being only players of two. And, and of course, I, you know, I loved being outside. I loved um, sort of the atmosphere and the environment of beach volleyball. Um, but yeah, I knew that I could, uh, I wouldn't have a very successful career playing indoor after university, um, at a professional level just because of my size. And so, um, I said, Hey, I, I, I can do beach volleyball, but I'm going to stick with this. If you're good at one, if you're good at indoor, are you generally automatically going to be good at the other? Does it translate very easily? A lot of people, um, you you would kind of assume so, but um, most athletes, beach volleyball athletes and indoor volleyball athletes, will will say they're different sports, and 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 I believe that too. Um, although a lot of the skills will transfer over, um, it, it is completely different. I mean, you go from a team of six people on the court to a team of two people on the court. The surface is very different. There's a lot of different skills. Um, indoor is very has now become very specialized. Where you know you have substitutions, so sometimes you're only asked to do, uh, you know, one or two things on the indoor court. So you have to, you have to be able to do everything outdoors. So generally I think most people, um, you know, the skills are transferable, but, uh, it's, you're not going to master them right away or be, um, be excellent right away. As you come onto the beach, it, it does take, take a good amount of time. So to be good at beach, to be good at what you're doing, what is the, what is the thing that makes someone a very good beach volleyball player? Assuming you have good volleyball skills to begin with, like everyone else does, what would make someone then into a good beach player? Yeah. Um, I mean, skill wise, you have to, you have to be really athletic. I mean, and you have to be able to move in the sand well. you have to be fast. Um, you have to, I, I mean, I've said this before, but um, so I feel like I'm repeating myself, but, but good at all of the skills because you're touching the ball every single rally. So, um, yeah, you're not just a setter, you're not just a blocker, you're doing exactly. everything. Exactly. You have to, you know, you have to be good at passing and setting and attacking. Um, the only thing that is specialized in beach is is defense, so blocking and defending. But um, 
So for me, I'm a defender. So I'm, um, you know, have to be really quick. I have to uh, be able to read the play and make decisions and change directions really quickly. And and because of my size, I, um, you know, I still I jump really well and 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 so I can attack well. But I also um, have to be a little bit more creative and and crafty with my shot selection. And uh, yeah. Well, when you say you jump really well, I won't get into it, but I, I'm i still trying to figure out how you guys jump in the sand like that, because I've tried jumping in the sand. I don't go anywhere. I just, <laughs> I, I, it's hard to do. But it is, yeah. I, you, you talk about, though, the skills that you have to have. You are now, right now, with your partner, you are now number one in the world. I, I went on the other day and looked at the all the teams that are registered in the FIB, FIVB, I think is the, there are like 1,400 teams in the world that are all, you're number one. Is that kind of surreal when you hear that um it's i think it's amazing to hear um you know it's really special um for for volleyball in canada and it's it's really exciting for me um personally but also just to see um where our program is headed and um and just to be an example and a sort of role model for all of the young women and men um you know in volleyball in canada right now has that changed? Do you think it's changed the way the other teams, when you go to a tournament now, that they prepare for you or, or the, how they get up to play you? Do you think it's made it different? I think so. I think, um, you know, with Brandy and I, we had, uh, you know, from 2017 to 2018, we had, um, you know, we made a lot of games and, and did really successful. So I think teams are now looking at us as a real threat and, um, you, you know, studying us a little bit more and teams, you know, are now winning more consistently. So, so yeah, I, I do think that, um, that other teams are tend to, tend to recognize that and, and have to prepare, uh, better. Do you feel any extra pressure then now that you have that spot to stay in that spot? I mean, everyone's always gunning for the top spot, so... Um, There's nowhere to go from there. <laughs> exactly. So, so yes, but um, it's it's also a privilege to, to be at that top spot and to, um, to have people, uh, I think, wanting it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's where we want to be, um, and so we're uh, motivated even more so to, to stay on top. I want to ask you a few of the questions that I think a lot of people always have about beach volleyball, but maybe they don't get to ask or they're embarrassed to ask. So I'll be their conduit and be do ask the embarrassing questions that maybe they wouldn't. But um, and I'm sure you've heard this one before, though. Mm-hmm. Um, the bathing suits is there? Are there performance advantages to those suits? Or why? When did it happen? Why with the women playing beach volleyball? How did that become the uniform? Um. Yeah, I don't have an answer as to sort of how or, or why it became the uniform. Um, I think it was, and maybe don't quote me on this, but I think it was mandated by by the FIVB, so the, the president of the association. And um, and there's lots of people who argue that it started in California or if it started in Brazil, and I think that's sort of what was worn at the time when, when beach volleyball really developed. But from a performance perspective, it's, what is most comfortable for for myself for the women who who play the sport um we oftentimes have to play in really hot circumstances um you know you know 30 40 degrees really humid we're sweating a lot the sand is sticking to you so you want something that's not going to inhibit you in any way um get in your way as you're diving or running around for a ball 
And um, yeah, I think that it it is very practical in the sense um, because it doesn't it doesn't doesn't restrict us and um, and I I think it's it's frustrating as an athlete sometimes that uh, people do question you about it that they that um, and then you look at other sports like swimming for example or track and you know these sports have been around for much longer than beach volleyball but they don't always get questioned about uh their uniforms so i think that there's something it's there's something about beach volleyball and maybe it's because we're on a beach um that that we get asked these questions but we're just like every other athlete um we're really proud of proud of our sport proud of our bodies and what we do and um, you know, it's it's how we, we make a living and, and how we perform and, and reach for our goals every day. Well, the, I mean, and honestly, the reason I ask is because we have heard it. I'm sure you've heard this too. There have been those who have said not what you just answered, that this is practical and it's comfortable and it actually helps, but they've just said it is a sexist thing. That that, that has been out there for a long time that, that that's there. And, and what I find interesting is, is your answer. It doesn't sound like you are feeling like you're being taken advantage of by wearing this. No, I think if you look at women every day in their training environment, if you ask a majority of the players, um, you know, it's what we choose to wear, it's what we are most comfortable in. And I, and I think that there's a lot of value in that, in that we are choosing to wear this. And, um, you know, there is the option for women to to wear um, shorts or a t-shirt, like a kind of a tank top sh- um, t-shirt, and that was originally put in for religious purposes um, in sort of the rules and regulations. And, and actually, if you will, in the 2016 Olympics, the Egyptian women's team, they were um, full, full, they had full length tights and, and long sleeves and, and wore their head, um, wore like a headpiece. Mm-hmm. So, so there is options um, for women if they don't feel comfortable or if it's not something that they choose to wear. You mentioned uh, also that if you're going to do this, that you're going to be proud of your bodies. Men and women in beach volleyball, I, I'm still waiting to see the first fat beach volleyball player. Is that because all you guys are great in the gym and work your butts off? Or is the sport so taxing that it's impossible to be anything except for an incredible shape if you're going to play this at a high level? I think it's both. I mean, you look at athletes, not only in beach volleyball, but across most of the sports. I mean, we work we work really hard. Um, you know, strength and conditioning has improved. Um, I think people have taken it much more seriously, and and there have been so much um, advances with it. And so, you know, I know that our Canadian program, we've got a, an, an amazing strength and conditioning uh, team. And so, yes, we, we work really hard on and off the court. And, um, and, and yeah, I think that it's uh, the way that I approach it is I'm – my my body is um, is a way for me to to reach the goals that I want hmm. to do um, statistically, and I'm I, you know I'm going to the gym trying to look good or to to lose weight so I you know get more sponsors or something or attract more attention. Uh, you know I'm I'm very focused on um, sort of focusing on my athletic abilities and and being in the best possible shape and health so that I can reach my goals. Uh, explain for those people, we just have a couple minutes left, when you're playing and we're watching on a serve, 
the person who's at the net, the non-server on the team is always, or the or the defender is giving signs behind mm-hmm. your back. What do they mean? Right. Yeah. So those are generally they're blocking signals. So each hand um, corresponds to each player on the other side of the net. So. Um, the most simple ones are uh, you have one finger up, and that means that the blocker is going to block line, and the defender will stand in the cross court. And the other one is a, is a two. So if you have two fingers, that means the blocker will block cross, and the defender will stand in the line. And then, um, and then from there, everyone kind of creates their own signals. So um, and different plays, and so your your signals will cor- uh, correspond to your defensive plays. So for someone who was watching, if they were to, would they be able to figure out what was going to happen just by watching? Or is there enough individual between the two of you stuff you've made up that nobody could figure it out, even if they (laughs) saw all the hand signs? Yeah, um, I think for the most part, everyone can kind of figure it out. Some people uh, have, you know, a couple unique ones, but for the, I mean, you can't get too creative when you've only got, you know, five fingers. Um, That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you do have the Olympics coming up next summer in Tokyo. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I, it's a stupid question to say how big a deal is it to you. I mean, I know that that is the the top of the mountain, right? The Olympic an Olympic medal would be the thing, even more than a World Cup medal or a tournament medal, anything like that. That's the biggest thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's what every athlete, and um, especially in in our sport uh, as an amateur sport, that um, you know that we're working towards. And so when you're training, when you're working out, when you're in the gym, all that stuff, is that what is front and center on your mind a lot of the time is the Olympics or is that just, I mean, how often do you think about the Olympics and, and what could happen if things go really well and you come home with a medal? Um, you know, I don't think about the Olympics in terms of what what could happen and I don't think about necessarily the the repercussions from the Olympics, I think um, right now as we're in our qualifying stage, of, I think about qualifying for the Olympics and, and what that is going to take. And um, so I have, I have the Olympics on my mind, but I really, for me, I focus on the steps leading up to that. So really it's um, in my training and my day-to-day, okay, what, what is my training ask of me today? And, and can I reach and accomplish everything that's you know on my list today to do and um and i i find i always kind of constantly ask myself okay my big goal is the olympics and is this you know is this daily task is this going to help me get there or not and and so it's sort of the small steps that help me you know day in and day out keep focused but then also achieve achieve those big goals uh, her name is Heather Bansley. She is the number one beach volleyball player. She was just named the Golden Horseshoe Athlete of the Year. Uh, it's a huge deal. It was well earned. And um, and we're most happy that we actually did this today because had we not, this interview would have lasted about 12 seconds with her wisdom <laughs> teeth and uh, wouldn't have got any of this. Heather, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.